Hey, and welcome to Cinema Snorkel. It's the podcast where we dive below the surface of the themes and ideas within movies. I'm Casey. And I'm Carlin. We are pumped to bring you another exciting, action-packed episode of Cinema Snorkel, this time on the major motion picture 2021 massive hit, Dune. What's to become of our world? A great man doesn't seek to lead. He's called to it. But if your answer is no, you'll still be the only thing I ever needed you to be. My son. Yes, and sorry it's been a while since this movie came out, but man, it was such a great blockbuster. I think it was everybody's like number one anticipated film. And so we're going to talk about it. There's some good themes in here, people. Definitely. And when I watched it, I... I kept like scrunching my brow, just trying to <laughs> puzzle out those themes because this movie is pretty like inscrutable in some ways. You're like, Whoa. what do you mean inscrutable? Like just like hard to understand. Yeah, well, it's very heady. I heard someone describe it as cold sci-fi. Like, mm. there's warm sci-fi where the characters mm. are relatable and you feel like you are just so in it with them. And then there's cold sci-fi and it's a lot, it's much more about world building and it's much more about um, like, yeah, setting the political stage for the plot to happen. And you like Paul, like you like Paul and you like Jessica and you love Leto and like you want to see them be okay and do good. But really it's, it's pretty detached emotionally. Yes. Which I think is um, ties into some of those themes. Oh, baby. Let's dive in. But first, Carlin, what did you like about Dune? Okay. More credible people have talked about how beautiful and stunning and amazing the cinematography and the setting and all that stuff is. So I won't rant on that. But I think my favorite thing about it, I really love Jessica. I um, Just as a character, I love the balance between her warmth as a mother and her love for her son against her her stone cold awesome Benny Gesserit prowess and her hand signals and the way she uses the voice like she's really collected and um but at the same time really loves her son like kind of unapologetically and they have they strike a similar warmth between Duncan and Paul like mm. unironically they just love each other kind of like big brother and little brother and I think those are such interesting relationships, especially as Paul comes of age. At the beginning, he's kind of young and he, he's a little bit distracted and he, he's not in the mood to do his fighting lesson or whatever. But throughout the movie, he has to kind of man up and um, and it changes his relationships with the people around him, which I just think that's an interesting storyline. What do you like, Case? I mean, I'm always a fan of a good like Shakespearean kind of tragedy plot a little bit, at least for the first half. Everybody dies. Spoiler. <laughs> oh, oh, they all die. I know. But not his mom yet, I guess. I That's not a spoiler because <laughs> I truly don't know what happens in the second part of Dune. The hard part is this is like one twelfth of the total story that Frank Herbert wrote because mm-hmm. there are like multiple, multiple Dune books in the series, yeah. and we've covered half of the first book, I What think. a surprise, too, because I, I read the first book, and I was expecting the whole book in the movie, and then it stopped halfway. <laughs> gotcha. Guess Ouch. you're buying another $12 movie ticket. 
in 2023. I'm not going to regret it either. No, me neither. Because I loved the world building of this movie. I say this on the podcast a lot. World building is like the central thing for me that sells a movie or just like consistency in it. Unpopular opinion. That's why I did not like. Oh, no, I just can't get into it. Never mind. I was just going to say, do you think we can go this whole episode without mentioning either Star Wars or Lord of the Rings or both? That's a negative, (laughs) Ghost Rider, because the parallels with Star Wars need to be made on this one in particular. If we go without Star Wars on any other episode, great. Let's try for it. And Loader, too, actually. We can't get away from it. Don't say Loader. That, that, That sounds gross. (laughs) <laughs> load <laughs> well, gotta <okay>. load her <laughs> drop a gotta drop a major load don't say that that sounds gross <laughs> well yeah that's why <laughs> that's why i don't say loader anyway i i thought the ships coming out of the water was really cool that was my favorite scene is when they're leaving caladan and the ships like mm. emerge from the ocean <clears throat> it just was like they didn't explain it they didn't need to it was so cool yeah, yeah, and they and they're like meticulously consistent with their world building, and I just I appreciate that for once. Like it does feel like okay, I'm not like jarred out of the cinematic experience by wondering mm. how'd they get there or that person survived getting stabbed with two lightsabers. How? <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's taking it all very seriously. I like that. So, Carlin, what? is dune trying to say this is what a question it's a heavy film and i mean i definitely have some ideas that i've written down but i first i want to hear from you what did you think the film was going for okay um and just a caveat because this is only half the story so there's a lot that we won't be able to say but there's also a lot that we still can say so i'm excited for that i mean this is mostly in my mind um it's a trap it's a political takeover, but underneath that, it's a coming-of-age story. And wrapped around all of that is, like, this massive geopolitical narrative, almost like documentary style. Um, but what I think it's really about is um, Paul stepping into his three birthrights. Mm. Um, his three birthrights being the Duke... As his dad dies, he becomes the new duke. Then he is the Lisan al-Gaib, which is the Fremen Messiah, which they shout to him as he's like exiting his aircraft and and landing on his new planet for the first time. Impressive pronunciation. Ooh, thank you. Um, It's because I listened to the audiobook and then watched the movie twice. (laughs) Okay, and then the third, then his third, and I think what the book is trying to say, his most important birthright is as the Kwisas Haderach. Somebody said it rhymes with knick-knack paddywhack, and that will help you to remember. It's the knick-knack paddywhack. Is that... All right. What are your three themes? I love that, because you're going for, like, Paul's journey as the theme. To me, that's the most compelling and the most interesting, but that might not be the whole what Dune is trying to say, you know? No, I was going to say that compliments really well. I tend to notice like philosophically what they're trying to say. Mm. And since I watched this movie over a year ago, I've been like puzzling over Frank Herbert's worldview and trying to yeah. unpack that. Yeah. And I think as they adapted this movie to film, they give you, first of all, a psych theme. 
Do explain. Well, they start to be like, hey, the main theme here is like oppression versus oppressing. Right. That's like the opening line that uh, Mm -hmm. Cheney says. Yeah. She's like, who will our next oppressors be? And you're like, oh, so, okay, nice. Like we're getting into the themes of aristocracy and power over oppressed people and how the oppressed people deal with it. Nope. Psych. That is not the theme of Dune at all. I think for the movie adaptation, they added that, but it just, to be honest, I don't see it anywhere else in the whole plot. They think it's about oppression versus oppressors and how you deal with that, but I really think the core theme of Frank Herbert's world is what is the nature of real power? Oh, yeah. Okay. So, like, let me just unpack that a little bit. On one hand, they want to, like, dignify the Fremen and be like, see, they're Mm -hmm. actually awesome, but they're underrated. And on the other hand, they're basically a tool for Paul to use. They're his hidden weapon on, on Arrakis. And Paul doesn't really care too much. I mean, he does, but it's like Frank Herbert doesn't really care too much about yeah. the, the Fremen other than like, look, they're awesome because they've adapted to the desert. Mm-hmm. So it's power. He's really interested in power and mm-hmm. the mechanics of power versus the morality of power, which is what we've come to expect from other films and movies that deal with the subject. That, funny enough, reminds me of what we were just saying about a cold sci-fi versus a warm sci-fi. Yeah, right. We want, and maybe because Frank Herbert unapologetically wrote a cold book, but in this modern day and age, we want a warm story. We want it to be like a love story and kind of like a finding yourself story and like, I don't know. We do want to see more humanity in the Fremen who are awesome, but that's not really in the source material. Yeah. No, they, they don't, he doesn't actually care. Herbert doesn't actually really care about, like, yeah, creating a warm story with addressing questions of the morality of power. He nods to, like, honor. So we, we're meant yeah. to like, we're meant to like Paul because Duke Leto is a really great dad and yeah. Jessica is a good mom and he's got loving people around him. Mm-hmm. But and they save lives. Remember, he goes back to yes. save the men on the carryall. So there's, like, honor. And I want to say that they nod to those themes, but that what they're really interested in is the mechanics of power, how it works. Hmm. And I see that on three different levels. Okay. How do environments, they mirror your, your Paul stepping into his birthright. Ooh. How do the environments give us power? How do uh-huh. religions give power? Okay. And then how does self-mastery lead to power? This is so good. I'm, okay, that's great. Let's unpack these. Do you want to unpack those? I really do. So first, how do environments deliver power in the world of Dune? How do they like create power? Well, they set up the whole Fremen as kind of a counter to um, the Sardaukar, which are the emperor. The empire has the emperor has his army of Sardaukar that are made tough by living in a hostile environment, and Leto's brilliant idea is. The Fremen are underestimated because they're just Bedouin people. But he thinks that they can match the Sardaukar because Arrakis is just as hostile of an environment. So hostile environment produces really tough warriors. Yes. And that definitely seems to be a major theme because the setting of Dune is thousands and thousands of years in the future of this world. Is it really? Yeah, it is because they reference things like the Orange Catholic Bible and they have this like evolved. So like... Herbert's definitely like an evolutionary materialist. Uh-huh. He definitely believes that culture will have a, yeah, I mean, he's like postulating culture will have evolved. Right. But that means evolution by environment. 
Right. So you see this literally in every culture he portrays. So the Spacing Guild, uh-huh. they're extra weird, because, and we don't know anything about them from the movie, but he mm-hmm. talks about them a little bit in the book. He's like, the Spacing Guild are extra weird because they've lived in space uh-huh. for centuries. Yeah. And they're the only ones who can navigate space. So their, their environment has shaped them to be the masters of space. And mm. if you want to go from one planet to another in the world of Dune, you need the Spacing Guild. You can't do it without them. Okay, what's another example? Um, the Atreides. So we've talked about the Fremen, Spacing Guild, but uh, and the Sardaukar. Um, but the Atreides... Well, I was going to ask you, what do you think the environment of the Atreides contributed? Um, loyalty, I would say. Hmm. Because that actually... Yes, I stand by this. And they actually use loyalty more like a commodity, which it yes. is. Because it builds um, trust between a ruler and his people. And you see that the Duke is really kind and he's got these, like, think about his main guys that he's got around him. Duncan, Idaho. Um, he's got... Chucky, uh, Kentucky. Chucky, Kentucky. <laughs> <laughs> he's got Gurney Halleck. Jerry. Billy Bob. Billy Bob <laughs> Boise. Um. Billy Bob Boise. Ah, love that guy. Uh, no. He's a very serious warrior, Billy Bob Boise. But he's got Thufir, Hawat. He, okay, so he's got this kind yeah, of right. elite team of people. They've got amazing skills, but their best quality is that they are loyal to their duke because they love him. And, um, and okay, they, they kind of just breeze past this in the movie, but in the book, they spend more time on that Yui, Dr. Yui. They think he could never betray Leto because, first of all, he loves the family, but second of all, because he's been preconditioned. Right. Right. like subservient to whoever kind of like owns him. He's almost kind of enslaved right. in some way, I think. But he, for the love of his wife, it does betray the Duke. It's almost like loyalties, they're undoing. Yeah. yeah. But that's interesting because I like the themes of loyalty. I think you're dead right. I think we're meant to like them because we're moral creatures. But again, the movie uses mm-hmm. loyalty like a commodity because the real question is power. Yeah. And so, okay, as we talk about these three commodities and also the three themes that you mentioned, these are the three birthrights. Like Paul steps, he steps into the loyalty Mm. that his father Mm. commands, transfers to him because he emulates his father in in the ways that matter. By going back for the, he wants to protect life when he can. He's given the choice many times and, and a perfectly honorable thing to do is to kill someone. Uh, he does kill, uh, what's his name? We don't really know that guy's name, but yeah, I know what you mean. At the end, he kills him. Yeah. Well, we do know his name, but I can't remember it. Uh, there's so many names. <laughs> just bear with us. They, if <laughs> you're listening weird. to this podcast and you somehow know the names <laughs> and we don't, then I just, I give you a gold medal. Well done. Because yeah, like yeah, I'm not worried. Off. I'm not worried that people are like, you got that wrong. <laughs> I don't care. Like 1% of the world <laughs> is going to know all the names mm. if, if, if that, if that, whatever. Yeah. If you're that person, will you just comment with the name just because we want to we expose and you, you for your nerd. I mean, sorry, recognize <laughs> you for all that you contribute. So how do religions give power? Because that's their other big theme. They really are dealing with like this hyper advanced, evolved kind of religion. Yeah. Are you talking about Benny Gesseritism? Well, I would argue, Carlin, that everyone in this film has ceremonies slash religion. Everyone, every culture. It's actually on the, on the surface, it's like soaked in religious imagery and ritual. So right, mm-hmm. the Fremen are like, blessed be the huge worms that come and eat people. 
uh, yes. the Benny Gesserit have their like things that they always say, like fear is the mind killer, you know, yeah, all this liturgies. stuff. Mm-hmm. Gurney Halleck reads from his old book, you know, when they're getting off of their ship yeah, to land. Right. He's got a little quote. They want to add a little texture to it. Like they have these old traditions that they've been steeped in and it's religion. It really is. Or mm-hmm. even the Sardaukar on that brief scene, they have their upside down didgeridoo ritual. <laughs> we have to mimic all the score moments because it's just so easy. I'm sure that after their upside down didgeridoo ritual, they're like ready for battle. They're like ready to kick some butt. <laughs> if you go upside down and someone plays a didgeridoo, you're like, yeah, they get anointed with blood. You're like it's a dune you. nerd. I'm just going to call it. <laughs> <laughs> You're like a dune nerd. No, You're that's, the in 1%. The, that's in the movie. I, we couldn't tell. My wife and I couldn't tell if that was, His name is was that like real blood. His or like, name is Jameis. Jameis? Who's Jameis? Casey. The Sardaukar? The guy, that, the guy that Paul kills. I knew his name the whole time, but I didn't want to expose myself. <laughs> You're a dune nerd. I'm a dune nerd. Those in glass houses can't uh, throw stones. So I'm sorry for making fun of you for being a nerd. Yes. You're a loader nerd. Don't say loader. <laughs> <laughs> Don't say loader. Um, yes, it is. It, it's the blood coming from the upside down bodies. Okay, so what? Does, oh, those guys does, are getting blah, 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 blah. killed and used for their blood. They're they're hanging upside down and blood is pouring out of their well, dang. bodies into a trough. And then he dips his hand in the trough and anoints all the Sardaukar. It's very intense. Oh, so this this is cold sci-fi. <laughs> very cold, stone cold. Yeah. Frank Herbert, you monster. Anyway, religions give power, but it's very interesting Herbert's take on religion because it's thoroughly, I would argue, materialist religion. Hmm. Like Mm -hmm. the goal of these religions is, again, I'm just going to keep saying it, but the goal of the religions is power. Mm. At first you're thinking, oh, okay, these are like their sincerely held beliefs. But Mm. something about the religions doesn't jive with if you watch it and, you know, you are religious or you are familiar with religion there's not a whole lot of like massive um, philosophical claims being made about the nature of life and reality. Uh Yeah. It's usually religion just in service of the goals and aims of a particular culture. And I think that's exactly how Frank Herbert views religion. Like that it's not making claims about reality or if it is, it's just to harness the people that believe it or to subdue them or motivate them or what have you. Yeah. The most powerful thing Herbert does with religion is assume things about it. Namely, assuming Mm. that it serves to cement culture together and further the goals of powerful people. Wow. Now, I think we have the leftovers of that in our society, but what we've added to it is that we want to see the warm fuzzy. And so the best versions of religion in, like, uh, I just watched the series um, Under the Banner of Heaven. Andrew Garfield is a Mormon detective and he's deconstructing his Mormonism as he's uh, investigating a murder case within the LDS church. But the whole point at the end of the movie is um, his friend who is a a Native American talks about how his spiritualism helps him to like feel good about life and good about his choices. But you just can't overemphasize it. Otherwise, you'll get out of whack and you'll start doing crazy Mm. things like the crazy uh, fundamentalist Mormons who are the murderers. Mm. So they kind of are like, don't take religion too seriously, but it can be a nice warm fuzzy for you. If, if it helps you to be a good person, then go for it. Like that's great for you. Yeah. What you're seeing and what you're feeling as you watch that Carlin, cause that's so good. That's so insightful. That's the shift between modernism uh-huh. 
to postmodernism. Okay, unpack that a little bit. Because Herbert published Dune in the 1960s. That's why their names are all like Jessica and Paul and stuff. Because those were the <laughs> yeah, hot names yeah. in the 60s. Oh, yeah. So cool. If he wrote it today, it'd be like Skyler <laughs> and... Aiden. <laughs> Aiden and Skyler. All of these uh, philosophies are like brewing at the same time. But modernism was... I would argue, a stronger force in the 1960s coming out of the early part of the 20th mm-hmm. century. Whereas postmodernism, we're just like saturated in postmodernism Which, now. Which, put that into layman's terms for those who aren't philosophers. Yeah, modernism is all about progress and the scientific, like purely scientific, rational uh-huh. view of the world. Like we can know lots of things just by observing through strictly observational mm-hmm. process but there's also a belief in progress and evolution that it, things are going to keep adapting and growing, okay? Um, postmodernism is more about what can we really know for sure? And the answer is like not a lot. So you really kind of, it's about mm. your feelings and trusting your feelings because that's the only real reliable guide. Because your senses your senses and science can be misinterpreted or they can be right. off somehow. Right. The only thing you can really trust is what you feel inside of right. your heart. And so Frank Herbert's world is going to jar with us a little bit, I think, because it comes out of a pretty modernist tradition and we're like seeped mm-hmm. in postmodernism. But they share a lot in common, modernism and postmodernism. They both sort of deny a lot of what our worldview would hold to, like the existence of a transcendent God who's active in the affairs of history. Yeah. So anyway, we'll, we'll get into our worldview in a little bit. But I wanted to say this because I think one of the central things to help understand Dune that's made the most sense to me is this. Compared to another sci-fi, Star Wars. <gasps> oh, right? <laughs> yes, Star Wars. <laughs> I've never heard you talk about this before. <laughs> okay, because Star Wars is all about behind all the science is religion, right? I do talk about this a lot. And so maybe I've said it on this podcast. In the world of Star Wars... There's blasters, there's ships, you know, Han Solo says that line, there's hokey pokey fairy tales can't compare to a good blaster at your (laughs) side, kid. And at the end of Star Wars, we discover that there's religion. There's Uh actually the force and it matters. It's mystical. Yes. And it's real, I think, is the point. And it helps Luke save the day because, you know, we're rooting for the light side of the force to win. And it does, and it's like, wow, okay, there's mystery to this world. There's something other than just the science, other than just the material components of the universe, the quote-unquote science of it. Yeah, yeah, sure. In Dune, everything is lathered in religion. Mm-hmm. Everyone has religion. There's ceremony to everything. There's tradition. There's, you know, like every culture has religion. But behind all the religion, even the Bene Gesserit, is just science. yeah. It's just stone cold materialism. When they say to Jessica, on Arrakis, we've done all we can for you. A path has been laid. Let's hope Paul doesn't squander it. In that line, they're sort of saying there's not really a crux to this religion. It's like our project of the centuries. Granted, pretty impressive, but it's us laying a path for Paul. So don't squander it. It's not like we're going to call on a mystic being in any kind of traditional sense of religion to help. We're calling on the the sisters of the Bene Gesserit and their clever plan laying. Okay, Jessica even says, when they're showing up to Arrakis, Paul's like, why are they calling me Messiah? And she's like, well, a path has been laid and they see the signs. And he says, kind of angry, they see what they've been told to see. Paul doesn't like that um, the people are being manipulated this way. 
Like it kind of feels like he's angry that the Bene Gesserit have all these schemes and stuff that have to do with him. And they've chosen this destiny for him basically. And he's like, I don't, I, this feels weird. This is uncomfortable. And my question is, is that something he's going to grow into? Is it something he's going to harness and change it so that it's more comfortable and, and more comfortable for us and for him? Or is he just going to succumb to it and become the the warlord who leads his jihad um, and just and just takes over the, the worlds? Right, right. Well, yeah, because I, I think on one hand, Paul might not be comfortable with how the people of Arrakis or whatever are being manipulated. No, don't do that. But really, he's like, I don't like being manipulated. Yeah, Paul yeah. is a lot of his quest feels like just self-preservation and it's about Paul mostly. Yeah. You're saying that feels that way because of the way Dune is or because this movie portrayed him that way? Um, Both. Like I think the book and the movie, I think the movie wants to have more heart than the book. Uh huh. But yeah. it can't really transcend the bounds of its source material. They didn't like want to break the source material open enough to do that. Yeah. So they're kind of stuck in this very, we keep saying it, cold sci-fi where Paul really, it is kind of self-preservation. Well, it's self-preservation, but it's also self-actualization, which is a hot theme. Because think of the conversation Mm. he has with his dad right before they're on, um, they're still at Caladan. And he's like, he says, a great man doesn't seek to lead, he's called to it. And if you don't want to be the Duke, then you'll you'll still be the only thing I ever needed you to be. My son. Ah, oh, heartwarming. Yeah. But basically, Paul, yes, this is your destiny, but I want you to I want you to be who you're made to be or who you're meant to be. And like you find feel. your own way to it. Find your own way to it. Yeah. Well that the third theme of power that I noticed, Carlin, is what I think the movie ultimately lands on, which mm-hmm. is that Almost beyond environmental power or religious power, the ultimate power is self-mastery. Yeah. Explain. Well, you said self-actualization. I think that's true, but I really feel like self-mastery is the is the true like uh, sense that Herbert wants mm. to use. And to me, that feels cold rather mm. than warm. Mm-hmm. Self-actualization can feel like all the little animals in the Sing movie, <laughs> you know, where they, they're like putting on their sweet production and being like, we, we get yeah. to be, we get to sing and dance, which is what we've always wanted to do. I'm a mom who can sing and dance. Yeah. I'm a porcupine who can sing and dance. Self-actualization <laughs> can be so heartwarming. Self-mastery feels a little more like, no, like, like I will overcome myself. And Paul goes from being thrown around by like in this loyalty phase at the beginning in Caledon he wants to do right by his dad then the Bene Gesserit kind of kind of like tamper with everything and remember the Bene Gesserit like puts his hand in the box Uh and is like time to decide if you're a human or an animal yep 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 here's what I don't know how much the filmmakers or Frank Herbert or whoever want to agree with the Bene Gesserit on this it seems like they do though because the Bene Gesserit want to say to be a human being, you must not give in to your animal instincts, and that's what it is to be yes. human. To be human is self-mastery. Yes. She says, uh, an animal caught in a trap would gnaw its own foot off to escape. What will you do? Yeah. Now, that will jar with our view of innate human dignity. Uh-huh. And I mean ours in a Christian sense, but I also mean ours in a society-shaped largely by Judeo-Christian values. Ooh, interesting. Okay, yeah. For, for two reasons. One is that as a result of 
the idea that people are made in the image of God, which is something that's foundational to our culture. Mm-hmm. Even if you've never heard that phrase, that's foundational. That's where you get your ideas yeah. about human dignity is from a Judeo-Christian worldview about that all people matter. Uh-huh. Which is what the writers of the Constitution put in there, whether whatever right. they believed about God, which they weren't, all, they weren't like necessarily all Christians, but they were theists right. enough to say that our rights don't come from our government. Our rights come from our Creator, and the government's just there to help protect them from those who exactly. want to oppress them. And we didn't always live up to this ideal, but the ideal is that all people, whether you're disabled, whether you don't, you're not as strong as your neighbor, whatever, that doesn't matter. Yeah. You have inherent rights as a person because you are a person first. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to prove it. Yeah, right. You have this inherent right. It'll also jar with our culture because we believe absolutely in giving into our animal instincts as beings then influenced by postmodernism, which is basically saying, follow your instincts, yeah. listen to them. Denying them is the antithesis of being a like, human they're being. They're noble and they're noble and they, you can't escape them because you're just a highly evolved animal. So there's that right. modernism piece. Right. But the postmodernism gets it, makes it a little mushier and a little softer. <laughs> yeah. More fun. They're just like, <laughs> your instincts are what makes it. And look at how we treat other, all kinds of desires from like your desire to actualize a career to yeah. sexual satisfaction, sexual fulfillment, right. sexual identity. It's like if you are denied, our culture wants to say, if you're denied the ability to express who you are mm-hmm. in all its fullness, you're actually less than human in that sense. You're not living into your full humanity. Yeah. Or the greatest evil would be to prevent someone from expressing what's in their heart. Yes. That would be, that would be the worst thing you could do. Right. But this philosophy of the Bene Gesserit, which I do think dominates Dune, is that self-mastery is what makes you human. And in that, Mm -hmm. I noticed the strongest possible parallel. I don't, again, I don't know enough about Frank Herbert. I keep throwing his name around. I don't know enough to say that this is what influenced him. First name, first name basis. Yeah, Frankie, Frankie Kentucky and I, um, (laughs) I noticed the strongest possible parallel between the ideas of Frederick Nietzsche and Ooh. what F- Frank Herbert wrote. Okay, unpack that because anybody who's heard Nietzsche will probably quiver a little bit because it's a scary name. Like when I hear Nietzsche, I go, oh, he's he's scary. Yeah, other people love him because his philosophy, I mean, one of his famous lines is, my humanity is a constant self-overcoming. Uh-huh. So Nietzsche is famous for destabilizing everything. He's like, God is dead. There's no such mm-hmm. thing as God. And he's famous for just following that premise to its logical conclusions. And what he says is there's no real right or wrong, Mm -hmm. up or down, or intrinsic meaning to the universe. The only thing that matters is overcoming yourself and achieving power. The will to power. Yes. And killing off the weak parts of yourself that would keep you from actualizing your power. It's leaning into uh, like philosophical evolution. Like we're going to just lean into it and say, yeah, okay, survival of the fittest, bring it on. Just you got to be the fittest. Totally. Eat or be eaten. Totally. And fans of Nietzsche will say, well, that's an empowering philosophy because it's pretty stark. But what he's trying to do is encourage weak people to kill the weakness within them to become strong. Critics of Nietzsche will say, well, yeah, the Nazis seemed pretty fond of that ideology because they were able to kill off weak people in the name of strengthening the Aryan race. Oh my gosh, yeah. Nietzsche himself was like an armchair 
philosopher and he didn't really I'm, I'm like above the what the nazi kind of uh aryan like racists are doing and that's not what i meant you know he just kind of rolled his eyes at it like I, what i have to say has nothing to do with this intellectuals are notorious for ignoring the practical yeah. impact of their ideas yeah so whatever <laughs> he's a complicated uh figure but the core of nietzsche's philosophy is the ubermensch that's german for those of you who don't know the ultimate man like the the superman uh-huh. The, the man who is able to finally master all of these animal instincts within him. Uh-huh. And, by the way, reject the false assumptions of weakness that religion place on us. Uh-huh. And become the kind of person who can grasp whatever they want. That's the ubermensch, the okay. superman, who's transcended good and evil. And Nietzsche was an ardent antagonist towards religion, especially Christianity. Uh-huh. I mean, he does chapters and chapters ripping on Christianity as a philosophy of weakness because it hmm. elevates it. Jesus says, blessed are the meek. Right. Turn turn the other cheek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Become humble and lowly. Yeah. You have to be like a child in order to, to be in the kingdom of heaven. And Nietzsche said, that's weak people using other means huh. to shackle strong people so that the weak people can then rule, which he believed was happening all over the place with Christian wow. principles. Well, Okay, translate this to the postmodern world because I can just picture most people today hear that and they also, like, they don't like that either because obviously that's horrible. Then weak people are are just trampled upon. So what does that mean for for the postmodern listener? (laughs) That's a really good question. I think we're all a blend of both ideas. Modernism and postmodernism, if you follow them logically will basically arrive you at the same conclusion. It's just the flavor of it. Is it self-mastery or is it self-actualization, like living into your desires or um, sort of like having the ultimate like self-control to become the Superman? So you're saying the postmodern, there's the Superman, but then there's like the self-actualized man, which is just, I keep going back to, it's just a warmer temperature almost. Yeah. Yeah, because the the fundamental difference is not whether or not they deny that there's a God. It's like what they do with that information. The postmodernists are going to say, hey, like, we can't know. We can't know one thing. It's really a question of what we can know in yeah. the world. So as long as it doesn't hurt you, just go for it. Exactly. Or hurt anyone else. Just go for right. it. Right. But ultimately, I would say our culture is Nietzsche light, as well as being fused with some Judeo-Christian assumptions in there that makes sense of so much to me it makes sense of this movie's obsession with power first and like the morality of power kind of second yeah it makes sense of the way that paul ultimately chooses to subvert the religious influence that's been put on him subvert it meaning he uses it to his advantage yeah and he well okay tell me if this is how you saw this scene when he decides to kill that dude at the end they have that like knife fight at the end yeah. with the chris knight uh-huh. and the benny jessard are like go with a friend like he's your friend uh-huh. and they're like whispering to him and paul eventually just goes nope I- i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm just gonna kill this guy and he does yeah to me that seems like the climax of the movie because paul is finally free of the Benny Gesserit sort of control over him. Yeah. He sort of says, I'm not going to just follow this path that you've laid for me. I'm my own person. Huh. And now I'm reaching for the, for my own destiny. 
I've, I've reached a place of self-mastery and mastery over your religious principles to where I'm just going to choose to kill this guy right. and seize the day. Because in that moment, what that, what, when he decides to kill um, that guy, who I don't know his name, he is participating against his um, better kind of discernment. He would rather not kill him. He would rather just be like, well, why can't we just have a duel and whoever wins the duel and we can both live. But and there's a moment where he's going to let him live and everyone is really upset about it, including uh, Jameis, who's like, no, this would be dishonorable for me to live after you beat me. And so Paul, when he kills Jameis, he's choosing to embrace the Fremen lifestyle. And he interesting. Kind of, then they go. This is in the book. He goes back and then receives his Fremen name. Maybe that's different than I'm. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. Well, here's from what I've just picked up on listening to other people talk about this movie is that um, this is a little bit of a curveball from the book, and you don't really know. This is kind of a directorial decision, and it kind of is like some free form for wh- whatever director. Like in the other iterations of this movie, um, it's kind of a directorial choice, like how you want to interpret. Um, what does it mean that J- Jameis is a friend or whatever? Now, that's so interesting. So, yeah, my question was, are the Benny Gesserit, like, actively trying to kill Paul with those messages of, like, let yourself die? Oh, interesting. If you take, because they're like, if you take the life of another, you take your own. And it seemed to me the Benny Gesserit were like, okay, enough Paul, time for him to die. And that's why they're whispering that stuff to him, just like, let yourself die. Because they don't like him for the Kwisas Haderach. They're like, we have other prospects, and it's probably not right. Paul. And they kind of make Jessica. And she's like, yeah, but it could be. And what makes him maybe the Kwisas Haderach is that he transcends even the Bene Gesserit scheming. And, and in order to receive all his birthrights, he actually does transcend all three of them to become something far greater than any three. And they're all pretty massive, like Duke of, a, of an entire kingdom, um, Messiah of an entire planet, and like super mind of the entire Bene Gesserit order. All of those are massive, but he, and I'm so sorry, but this does kind of spoil it, but this is where we're going. We're going towards Paul's glorious uh, jihad and his glorious takeover of the empire. He's going to become the emperor, the ultimate emperor, God. And it, you just read the title of the next book. It's called God Emperor. So uh. <laughs> <laughs> no spoilers, really. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. And so here's the main question I walk away from Dune with, Carlin. Like, mm-hmm. what is Dune's moral center? Like, what are they actually trying to tell us about all that? Go for it. <laughs> Do you have any impression about that? Like, yeah. no. oh, you're saying you're not saying Demi go for it. You're saying go no. For I'm it. saying that's what they're saying. Go for it. Like, if you go for the power, like, really, you we're watching Paul. He's like a bullet train, and he's building up steam. I'm mixing my train metaphors. He's building momentum. He's building momentum. He's building momentum. He's unstoppable, and now he's really unstoppable. And now he is like traveling at the speed of light. Like he transcends everything. And the Bene Gesserit kind of hint at this at the beginning. We know this is where they're going because the Kwisatz Haderach is the one mind who is able to for, like perform outside of space-time. It's pretty, it's intense. And I think if there's anything, I think that the book is meant to give us a little bit of, um, like we're kind of humbled by it or we're kind of meant to be yeah. scared of it a little bit. Yeah. The way Paul is scared of it himself. 
Like he keeps having yeah. these visions of the future where he's a, he's a killer and he is not really loving it. And he's angry because he, he kind of doesn't want to lose who he is in all of that. But the only way forward is through it, through all of these paths that have been laid out. Wow. You know who is also scared of power in some ways? Gandalf? Was Frederick Nietzsche. Sorry. <laughs> oh, Gandalf. He doesn't take the ring. Neither does Galadriel. Yeah, Lord of the Rings is preeminently concerned with the morality of power. Mm. To the point where Tolkien almost just leaves the mechanics of power like pretty vague. What does the ring do? Ask your average person who's seen Lord of the Rings. What does well, it the makes ring you invisible, do? but clearly that's not it. <laughs> that that that's ain't a bonus. it. That ain't it. <laughs> yeah. Tolkien doesn't, he doesn't really care to elaborate. He really is interested in the morality of power. It's enough to know that the ring is a mysterious, terrible, dark force. One ring to rule them all. I was going to say Nietzsche is a little bit afraid of power. And that's why Nietzsche actually is an incredibly compelling writer. Mm. Because he himself is not, so like his famous other line is that God is dead. Mm -hmm. And people are like, oh, Nietzsche, you wanted to kill God. And Nietzsche's actually like, no, 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 I didn't, I didn't want to kill God. I just am noticing that there is no God. Yeah. Yeah. And so we've effectively killed God. And here are the terrible, horrible, wondrous implications of this. And Nietzsche is all like poetic behind his big mustache (laughs) about like, it's both terrible and it's a wide open sea. You know, it's like, it's awe-inspiring, it's fear-inducing, and it's full of potential. It's like a, a little puppy that broke out of his pen. And all of a sudden he realizes he can go anywhere and do anything and it's a big wide world out there. Exactly. Yeah. And and maybe Dune's moral center is trying to just invoke that same feeling mm. in us. What can the Superman be? How what could it terrifying, really be? How terrifying to behold. What are the heights to which the Superman could rise? Casey, I think there's a lot. People will argue there's a lot of other themes in Dune. And they're interesting themes. They're worth talking about. Like, if you got, if you guys want to shoot them to us, leave comments. But actually, I think you nailed it. I think that is really what the thrust of the book is going for. And I don't know if we know yet how we're supposed to feel about it, but I have an inkling that you're right, that it's, it's actually kind of like, this is scary. So, Carlin, let's talk about Christianity and our Christian worldview yeah. then. Like, how does it, because it's interesting. The, these ideas, when you boil it down, it, you know, if we're right about sort of that Nietzschean ideal. It's not an accidental clash with uh-huh. re- religious, but specifically Christian ideals. Yeah. So I want to talk about that. Yeah. Well, the first thing I notice is there is a God versus there isn't one. Um, the world isn't just uh, science and, f- and physical reality. There's spiritual reality, which gives the physical reality meaning. So physical matter, there's a realm in which things are good or evil. And not just powerful or weak. Well said. And I gotta be honest, Carlin, I like huge elements of Dune. I really admire like what mm-hmm. they do. It's fun. It's very cool to watch. But there's a piece of it that also leaves me feeling really depressed. Yeah. Do you feel the same way? Yeah, yeah. Tell say more about it. I just think materialism, sorry, now I'm gonna tip my hand as if I haven't already. <laughs> materialism sucks. <laughs> It's boring. You're going to say materialism is awesome. I know, right? Beyond just being like immoral, because I believe morality is real, and pretending that it isn't is a surefire way to create immoral, bad people who do bad things. Because your desires, just given free reign to your desires, untethered from a moral center, they destroy other people. They destroy goodness. 
yeah, that's how evil goes unchecked. I mean, Lord Acton's famous quote, um, uh, power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Mm, mm-hmm. Nietzsche would reject that because he'd be like, what do you mean corrupts? That's a religious <laughs> idea. That's like yeah. a good and evil thing. We're beyond that now. We're beyond that. Wow. And I think that that is a philosophy that can only lead to destruction because I believe there's something in each human heart that given the opportunity actually could and will go towards evil because we're in a we're fallen beings why has no utopian society ever really been able to succeed Mm. it's not because it's never been tried well enough it's because at the core people will find a way to abuse power just on a different level also i find materialism boring Mm -hmm. like star wars is gripping to me because you're like gosh there's something in I, i don't believe in the force obviously but when luke relies on that like mysterious center of the world that gives shape and meaning to the stuff that he sees around him that resonates with me and I would argue it resonates with almost every human for all of human history it's like that scene in Rogue One where the blind guy is like I'm one with the force and the force with me yes and he like goes out there and like like, beats all those guys and he relies on the force it's the same it's the same thing that Luke does yes blindfold your eyes oh he literally blindfolds himself so that he can be in better in tune with the spiritual reality yeah man i mean and that that is interesting it reminded me of a gk chesterton quote and Mm. it's kind of long but is it okay if i I just want to read the whole thing chesterton you've got to read the whole thing this is in chesterton's essay the ethics of elfland which if you want an amazing read this Mm. this would be fantastic chesterton says i've remarked that the materialist like the madman is in prison the prison uh-huh. of one thought. These people seem to think that it was singularly inspiring to keep on saying that the prison was very large. But the size of the scientific universe gave one no novelty, no relief. The huh. cosmos went on forever, but not in its wildest constellation could there be anything really interesting. Anything, for instance, huh. such as forgiveness or free will. The grandeur of infinity, of the secret of its cosmos, added nothing to it. So the expanders of the universe had nothing to show us except more and more infinite corridors of space lit by ghastly suns and Mm. empty of all that is divine. So whereas the world that is not just stuff, the stuff it's made out of, is filled with the capacity for wonder, for good and evil, for forgiveness, for humanity, for innocence, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. Even for real courage, everything that makes life worthy or interesting mm-hmm. is stripped away from it if life is just the stuff and we're left with what sounds exciting but i truly believe is a fundamentally boring idea and that's the will to power yeah power is like kind of interesting and the mechanics of power are kind of interesting but try living that lifestyle in your own world i guarantee you among the horrible things you will be you'll be bored as one of them <laughs> yeah yeah because power is like kind of interesting but what's more interesting is Everything else in the whole world. Yeah. I picture like a million celebrities that have achieved everything they could possibly want. They have all the money. They've got all the trophies. And you could just Google it. You'll find like eight articles about celebrities saying like, okay, now what? Like I have everything that I want and I'm still empty in my heart. Tom Brady. Robin Williams. Madonna. All these people. Jim Carrey. When Matt Damon received his first Oscar, he tells a story on the Graham Norton show where he's like, Thank God I didn't screw anyone over to get this. Wow. Because it's not worth it. So the real question that's interesting is why is power worth pursuing? 
Yeah. And what does Christian? So what does Christianity say to that? Because I think we have a great answer to that question. Why pursue power in the first place? I, I keep having this image come to my mind of Elizabeth Bennett walking into walking into Pemberley, which is Mr. Darcy's like massive estate, and he is a he's the powerful character. He's got all the money, and she's walking through, looking at all these cold statues, and she's in awe. This is a wonderful, beautiful place, but he's not there until she turns around and there he is and all of a sudden this big cold empty house has all this meaning because she sees him and then they have this their moment where they like kind of reconcile and and you find out that mr darcy is not just cold powerful he's warm he's protective of his friend he's um yeah he's a little bit prejudiced but he actually is a man of honor who takes care of people who need him and that is what gives Pemberley any joy at all is that Mr. Darcy lives there and he's a good man and he loves Elizabeth. And so the power becomes like a really fun, beautiful playground. But w- without the heartbeat, it's, it is just cold and, and meaningless. And Darcy's power means something because of how he uses it mm-hmm. to serve people. And I mean, that is the essence of the gospel. Jesus in... Um, Uh, Matthew's gospel, two of his disciples are like, Lord, we want to uh, sit at your right side and your left (laughs) side. (laughs) And it's like, they want power. And Jesus is like, you do not understand, first of all, what you're asking for. Because they think we're on this little team Jesus, like we're the 12. We're so awesome. We're leading this revolution. And he's like, no, you're asking to sit at the right and left hand of the God of the cosmos. And he asks people elsewhere, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Yeah. Heck no. Heck no, they can't. Because he dies for the sins of the whole world. The sins of, it, of all of humanity are laid mm. on his shoulders. No one, could, no one could drink that cup. Yeah. But then in Matthew's gospel, uh, in chapter 19, Jesus says to his disciples, you know how the kings of nations show their power to the people. Important leaders use their power over people. It must not be that way with you, but whoever wants to be great among you, let him care for you. Whoever wants to be first among you, let him be your servant. For the Son of Man came not to serve, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I love comparing Jesus to Nietzsche's idea of the Ubermensch. When they're about to execute him, Pilate's like, do you understand that I have the power over you? And Jesus says, you have no power over me. You really don't, other than what God gave you. Do you understand that I could call 10 legions of angels right now who would deliver me from this? But uh, no one takes my life from me. I give it up. Yeah. Yeah. So the ultimate ideal, I mean, Jesus does for us and models for us what power is meant to be for. It's for the service of people and not just people, but the least of these. It's for serving people who have no power. That's what it's for, for their betterment and their good and nothing else can be justified with the use of power. Wow. That's an ethic that will change the world. Okay, let me ask you a question though. That has the power to change the world. Why how why? I mean, I feel I feel it. I know what you're saying, but explain that. Man, I I just think the first reason is that it's actually true. <laughs> you know, like if that's not true, it's a nice story. But yeah, I, right. I think the first reason that it will change the world is that it, it is actually true. Like, it's an ethic that makes no sense unless God is real. Mm-hmm. But given that God is real and the premises of Christianity are true, which I think there's 
evidence that that they are. I mean, that's a conversation for a much larger podcast, but in my own Christian walk, that's what's led me back to this worldview is I see evidence that it's true. Yeah, I think of C.S. Lewis saying, uh, I believe in the sun, not because I can see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Yeah, I just, I think the message of Jesus is true. I think God really is supreme over everything. And the secret to real authority is to surrender first to him. Um, and that's why blessed are the meek for they mm-hmm. will inherit the earth. It's because God mm-hmm. cares for weak people. Mm-hmm. And the, and the um, hubris of people is to think that we're not actually that weak. We, we're all actually weak in God's sight. So given that premise, our only option is to say to the God who represents ultimate goodness, I'm so sorry. Then the second half of that is that what power we do have in whatever measure it's given to us has to be used for the good of other people. And that means service, like serving them. That's that's the heart of Jesus's ethics and his ethical teaching because mm-hmm. it matters in the sight of God. So I think that'll change the world. But I also just think Carlin, like just even on a totally different track, it's just more, it's just better. It's just more exciting. <laughs> Life is richer that way. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you, I love your analogy of the bullet train. I think that captures Dune for me. Like w- once the bullet train's going a hundred thousand miles an hour. Wow. Dang, that's fast. Okay. Then what if it was going like a million miles an hour? Like my oh, mind is man. literally blown. <laughs> <laughs> That's so fast. Yeah. We're talking about the Superman getting bigger and bigger and better and better. Right. So what? So what? Like Chesterton's like, there's no real novelty in it. So we increase the scale of things, whatever. Yeah. It's still just naked power and the mechanics of power, blah, blah, blah. Right. What we're really looking for is meaning and purpose. Like why use this yeah. power? What actually does matter? You know what I, my guess is that in this movie, because we're pretty uncomfortable with just the raw power, even though that's maybe what Herbert was enchanted by or trying to go for, um, we're more enchanted by a personal relationship. So I just bet that Cheney is kind of the solution. Like Paul and his love for her and the family that they can build together will be um, the thing that we as a as a postmodern audience will latch on to. I think you're right. I wonder if the filmmakers are going to try to take it more in that direction uh, in the second part of this movie or if they're going to land it like a tragedy. Like maybe there's mm. hope, but... And but the I, tragedy is that he succeeds. It's like kind of fun to think about power in this way, but I wouldn't want to live in the Atreides household. It's like concrete and just a bullhead and they're all like dour faced and they talk to like even Paul and his mom, when they talk to each other, they're like, are you okay? Yes, Paul, use the voice to command me to do the water. You know, it's just like, yeah, like where's the joy? There is none. There can't be any actually in this world. Yeah. There's some, I know I'm over, I'm overreaching. But but the, the times that we find it are in the times that are much more human Yes. Like when Leto says, I should have married you. He's like, he didn't oh, yeah. because he wants to protect her from political alliances. He needed to keep himself single so that he was a tempting offer for other uh, empires, whatever. But he's like, I should have married you because he loves her. Yeah. And she's his uh, ride or die. Like, but he didn't. And that, and he has some regret about that. Yeah. And like, so almost like despite their main premise, they can't help, they can't keep the humanity out of all of those moments. And those are the ones that I... Those are the ones we like th- and that care I like, about. and I want more of. So yeah, Dune. Wow, I feel like I've been on an epic space journey <laughs> in this <Yeah>. conversation, <laughs> and it's changed us. We're like the space guild. We're weird now. Yeah, we are weird.
weird. We're gonna start saying nanu nanu and holding our hands like this. And Kwisak <laughs> hey, for the end of this, can we just spend some time? I'll come up with a Dune name, and then you do the <laughs> behind it. Okay. Okay, perfect. My lord, Wendy McDowell has died. Donna Miller. Donna Miller. I can't do better than that. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Cinema Snorkel. We'll catch you later. <laughs>